0: We're still in the Book of James this week, and with um, Calvin's approach, not far ahead of us, i'm starting to wonder if we'll ever get to the end <laughs> but um, but we're doing well. We're starting chapter four this week, and I was reflecting a moment ago how it is that um, a sermon is really never finished because while I was reviewing this material in the back, um, I added a few things. I hope I can read my own writing. Um, And no doubtless as I speak, I'll think of some other things. So, let's let's just pray. Father, thank you for the light that your word sheds as we've just sung. Thank you that it will prevent us from bumping into things in the dark, and for that matter, it will keep the dark away. I pray that we would turn to your word for that light, Lord, and not close our eyes to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week in the second half of James chapter 3, we dealt with the topic of wisdom, and we learned where genuine heavenly wisdom comes from. And we also had a look at its alternative, which of course is from the earth, and some of the problems that that earthly wisdom might cause. And this week, James gets into the subject of division. And no, I'm not going to talk about any maths, we're talking about disagreements among people. As my opening example, some of the better educated, and I suppose this is a a term that may be um, up for some discussion, the better educated amongst us might be familiar with the following exchange. Is this the right room for an argument? Well, I've told you once. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. Did. Didn't. I'm telling you, I did. You did not. Oh, I'm sorry. Just one moment. Is this a five-minute argument, or the whole full half-hour? Uh, just the five minutes, I think. Ah, thank you. Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. No, I didn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. You came here for an argument. (laughs) An argument isn't just a contradiction. Well, it can be. No, it can't. An argument is a connected series of statements intended to establish a proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. Yes, but that's not just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Argument is an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of any statement the other person makes. No, it isn't. (laughs) Yes, it is. Not at all. And it goes on like that for some time, I'm afraid. And that of course is from a Monty Python sketch that I'm sure some of you will have heard. As funny as it is, as funny as it is, it remains an unfortunate fact of life that whenever there is a group of people gathered together for any purpose at all, there is going to be some conflict whether or not they have paid for the privilege. This might take the form of minor verbal disagreements at the level of yes it is, no it isn't, like we've just heard. but sadly it often ends up as something much, much worse. And it's even sadder that Christians fall into the same trap and, for that matter, have always fallen, as James shows us in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And the translation I used had a very helpful heading, which said, Pride Promotes Strife. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, That war in your members. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is a reality that our own church, this group of people here, cannot claim to be immune from the wars and fights that James is talking about. And this makes it a very relevant passage for us today. There's always this danger of thinking that the Bible's message is only real for someone else, perhaps somewhere else, or maybe even some when else. And when we fail to constantly check our behavior against the truths and the standards that we find in God's word, we leave ourselves open to falling into many kinds of error. Bearing in mind what we heard last week about the purity, peace, gentleness, Mercy and fruitfulness, and partiality and honesty that comes from relying on heavenly wisdom, this talk about war sort of feels like a bit of a slap in the face. However, this is James's message. This is how heaven is, what Christians ought to be like, but this, unfortunately, is the reality, which is wars and fights. And this conflict is not God's will. design because his instruction to us and this is just one example of many is very clear in John 13 a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another it's a great great shame that for the most part we don't live this way Because in doing so, we first of all rob ourselves of the peace and harmony that ought to be the outstanding temporal benefit of our relationship with God. And worse, we devalue the reputation of God and the church in the eyes of the world. If there's something that ought to make us feel really uncomfortable, it is making God look bad. And friction in the church can have very, very small beginnings, just involving one or two people but these things have a way of getting out of hand and turning into an all-out war in just the same way that a little fire may become a raging bushfire when fanned by the wind and you know war my friends war is truly truly terrible i don't know how many of you have been watching band of brothers which has been playing again on on the tv this is the third time I've watched it. It's a fantastic series about the Second World War. But it really brings home just the appalling destruction and tragedy and mess of war. And coincidentally, there was some real footage of the D-Day landings that was shown on the History Channel. You know, to watch those men being mown down as they landed on those beaches, it was It was horrible it reminded me of just what an ugly expression of man's basic nature we see in war. So why does James use that word, war? Something so ugly. He does. He, he's done that very deliberately because he wants us to understand that this isn't a game. It has serious consequences. Somebody always loses in a war. What are some of the lessons that we learn for war. And I'm not going to go into these in any detail. I'm just going to chuck them at you, just as ideas to think about. Well, war involves a lot of people. And some of those people die. Now, we've seen in this, um, this passage the use of the word murder. And you might think that that's quite a strong word. Do do disagreements really end up in murder? Well, yes, they do sometimes. Sometimes it gets so ugly that people actually kill each other. And there's another kind of murder that's possible as well, and that's a thing called character assassination, where for a person's own ends, they will actually attack the standing of another person and destroy them in the eyes of others. That's another kind of murder. Another thing about war is it has this little habit of spilling out of the place where it started and involving a much larger area. War breaks things. They won't ever be the same again. Wars are expensive in ways that are well beyond mere money. There's always going to be personal consequences from going to war. You might not die, but you will bear the scars of the wounds that you have for the rest of your life and those scars well they might be physical but they may just as well be emotional either way they're going to damage our function in some way and our function is supposed to be to serve God and glorify Him so I ask why would we want any of these outcomes why would we yet still we fight and go to war with our brothers and sisters in christ this is this is sad and is true, and it is the regrettable power of our desire for pleasure that causes it. This is what we learn from the newspaper and the TV and magazines. Are we helped by those nice shiny leaflets that get stuffed in our letter boxes? you know because they just arouse in us that that want for more and Inasmuch as we shouldn't allow this poison into our personal lives, we really should never bring it into the church with us. This desire is the root of bickering and strife amongst believers. We want more, and often we're jealous of others. We have a polite term for this in society. We call it keeping up with the Joneses. If we were honest, we would tell it like it is. It's just plain greed and covetousness and envy. And these are very strong emotions that can overcome our reason to the extent that people will do almost anything to gratify those lusts. But the truth is this, in 1 Timothy 6. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. What's the point of trying to build up possessions or position? It won't truly gratify us now, and it has absolutely no relevance at all when we die. Only the good works that we have already heard James speak about have any worth there. The words consumer culture will never satisfy us. A friend of mine in Auckland sends me uh, daily devotionals that are written by Charles Swindoll, and a recent one which was titled being real, reads like this. Dave Cohen's one-time star basketball center for the Boston Celtics disappeared. Without warning, he walked off the practice court, showered, dressed, and drove away, alone. He kept driving to somewhere. His only explanation was a familiar comment, I need to get my head together. He added that it could take as little as two weeks or as much as ten years. The sportscasters, management team, spectators and fans couldn't imagine what he was looking for. I could. The Carpenters used to do a number that helps explain the superstar's puzzling reaction. It's a peaceful soul song that talks about needing a place to hide away, to be quiet, to think things through, to reflect. Perhaps that's what the Boston superstar was trying to say. He had everything imaginable. Fame, possessions... Job security, a strong body, and lots of bucks. But maybe at that moment his life lacked something far more important. Something like a sense of purpose and inner fulfillment. Something which basketball and all its benefits could never provide. An inner itch that can't be scratched by achievement, or people, or things, or activities. To scratch it requires a great deal of internal searching, which the athlete felt he couldn't do and still keep pace with the maddening NBA schedule. Now, Charles Swindoll goes on to make a slightly different point with this story, but it seemed to me at this time that it was a good illustration of how these desires that we have are an irritant that no amount of fancy cream will ever soothe. I mean, here's a fellow with everything material that most of us would aspire to, but there's still that ache that just won't go away He was a man who wanted more but didn't know why or even what that more might be. The only place that we will find that genuine sense of purpose and inner fulfillment is in a living Christian relationship with God. So what's the answer? Well, prayer is the right approach to this problem. Don't argue. Don't fight. Pray, James says. You do not have because... You do not ask. You don't have what? A big house? A flash new car? A gold watch? Or maybe in a piece? A loving attitude? Fellowship with your brothers and sisters? Instead of taking these things to the Lord in prayer, we try to get what we want by our own efforts, and often what we want is the wrong stuff. Unfortunately, because we are quite an affluent society and consequently very comfortable many people now reject the idea that God is even there at all. They're unable to see his provision anymore and believe that it's only their own efforts and interests that have any meaning. And so, driven by those insatiable desires and urges that we spoke about earlier, they spend their lives in the pursuit and service of that great God more. They don't have peace because they don't ask. It's such a shame that the world cannot see God as the source of their provision. I have to ask, is this us? Is this me? That's what I was wondering when I was looking at this. We can't afford to not constantly ask ourselves this question when we hear challenging stuff. There are two aspects to this problem. The first is those that we know don't believe. But there are some other people who we pray are believers, but probably are not. There is a kind of Christian that's begun to see God as a sort of super cosmic warehouse store. If you go and ask Him in the right way, and uh, you know, just like that pizza ad that's on the TV at the moment, if you turn up before 5.30 and say, cheese meister three times, then you'll get anything that you want. It is true that God will supply all of our needs. And in His wisdom, sometimes He entertains our wants as well. But we have to understand where the power in the relationship is. It's squarely in the hands of God. We cannot control Him in any way at all. He has bought us by the blood of Christ. We are called to serve Him here on earth. But the reward for that lies in heaven. If we are blessed by God while we live, then praise Him. If we are not blessed, then praise Him. But at all times, in want or prosperity, we should continue to live as He desires and continue in His service. And this is why James says in verse 3, You ask and you do not receive because you have asked amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. This following section is a a direct quote from the Believers Bible Commentary. I was groping for words to sum this bit up, but this this section does it so well. It says, If we want something which we do not have, we should ask God for it. If we do ask and the prayer is unanswered, what then? It simply means that our motives were not pure. We do not want these possessions for the glory of God or for the good of our fellow men. We wanted them for our own selfish enjoyment. We wanted them to satisfy our natural appetites. God does not promise to answer such prayers. What a profound lesson in psychology we have in these first three verses. If men were content with what what God has given them, what staggering conflict and unrest would be avoided? If we loved our neighbors as ourselves, and were more, more interested in sharing than in acquiring what peace would result if we would follow the Savior's command to forsake all instead of to accumulate, to lay up treasures in heaven rather than on earth? What contentions would cease? This is really exciting. You know, what, what an amazing idea. What a fantastic thing that is worth imagining and working for. And this is a vision of what our churches ought to be. But for the most part, they are not because we bring the same things into the church that the world does and it causes strife and division. So I ask again, is this us? Is this you and me? Well, are we ever in for a hiding? Adulterers and adulteresses, James says. You know, I just... I can just imagine him standing in a pulpit and actually roaring that, you know, because he's he's pretty angry. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, (laughs) steady on there, James. How can I possibly be an adulterer? I've never done anything like that. No? Adultery is associated with the breaking of a marriage covenant through sexual sin with a third party. It's very serious stuff. A covenant is a mutual undertaking between two parties or more, each binding themselves to fulfill obligations. And for example, this is why we exchange vows when we marry, to establish and to publish our obligations. Now the translation that I've used has got both adulterers and adulteresses in it. The one in your Bible might, might only say adulteresses. It just uses the feminine. So does this mean that only women are guilty? Well, of course not. Um, but I was looking at a Bible uh, bumper sticker the other day that, that uh, made me wonder about this. It would be nice if women were wrong for a change because... Um, the, The sticker said, if a man speaks in a forest and there is no woman to hear him, is he still wrong? (laughs) Sorry? (laughs) Of course James isn't singling women out and he can't single women out because both sexes commit this kind of sin most readily. The explanation is this. When we look at the Old Testament, we can see that the way God joined himself to the people of Israel through a covenant is often pictured as a marriage relationship with God as the groom and Israel as the bride. Despite that special bond, a very repetitive theme in the Old Testament is that of Israel wandering off to worship other gods. And the language that's used by prophets when remonstrating with the Israelites for that sin, well, it often uses words like harlot an adulteress, because they were spiritually joining themselves to false gods in violation of that marriage covenant. So here we have a bit of a picture of the position when a Christian today, and remember that should be you and me, takes their eyes off God to focus on some sort of an idol, to serve that idol. It might be cars, it might be houses, it might be shoes, it might be whatever, there's many things. And Many of these things are not that obvious. But that is spiritual adultery. It's a breaking of our vow to serve and worship only God. And that's why the term adultery is used and why, frankly, it is justified. I think that this is a very sobering comparison. I can imagine that many people would not see that keeping up with the Joneses is anywhere near as serious as committing adultery. But it is. God is so jealous of our relationship with Him. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? God takes that relationship very, very seriously, totally, unreservedly, and unwaveringly, and promises to be faithful. We know that He will not fail. And that all of our hope rests in him. That's his part of the covenant. It's consequently not unreasonable for us to be equally serious about that covenant, especially when we consider how we have by far played the lesser part in establishing it. Folks, we need to be really careful about what we spend our eyes, what we spend our lives thinking about and serving. It's very clear from the language here that we can bring a great deal of offense to God by ignoring Him in favor of gain and position or material wealth here on earth. Given what He's done for us, we should try harder. So when we open the newspaper or that brochure or watch those Harvey annoying ads on TV, when we think about the relationship that we have with folk, In this church, and for that matter, other churches around us who might have slightly different theology to us, let's try to remember who we serve and to act in a way to fulfill God's instruction to us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a wise law, and we will do well to observe it. I don't want to be an enemy of God because that is a terrible and a terrifying proposition. If I find myself in this position of idolatry or divisive behavior, what hope is there for me? But, do you remember that word from last week and the hope that it gives? But he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It doesn't matter how much difficulty we might think that we're in how far we might have strayed from God because His grace is always sufficient. God never runs out of grace. It may cause us despair to consider how high the standard of behavior for us is contained within the jealousy of His Spirit. We might feel that we can never succeed. We can never make it. But He gives More grace. In the same way that we read earlier in James 2, mercy triumphs over judgment. God's grace triumphs over his jealousy. Isn't that fantastic? Here's a little poem. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his Multiplied piece. Now these words were written by a lady called Annie Johnson Flint and she was a very interesting woman. She was rendered an invalid by arthritis at a very young age, in fact before she had finished high school. And she was confined to a bed and she spent most of the rest of her life in great pain and suffering. So she started writing poetry just as a way to to pass the time and it ended up being something that she did for the rest of her life. She suffered a great deal due to her illness but we can see from this poem that although she was no stranger to great suffering she was also no stranger to God's overflowing grace and that's a good lesson for all of us. Isn't God's grace... Amazing and humbling. What a blessing we receive through His grace. Again, though, there is one word. If, if we are humble, we must recognize our need and our unworthiness before God can save us. If we are proud, He will come against us with the same mighty power and with the same single-mindedness by which He saves us. The Greek word that's used in this um, verse for resists is a military term that depicts the idea of a full army ready for battle. It's not just one guy standing there ready to do you in. It's a whole army that faces you. This is serious stuff. There are no half measures to be used against the proud. And why not? Because it's a serious sin. The Greek word for proud is ephanos which has the idea of arrogantly supposing yourself above others. When I was looking at MacArthur's commentary, he quotes the explanation for this word of a Scottish theologian called William Barclay. And he says, This word literally means one who shows himself to be above other people. Even the Greeks hated this pride. Theophrastus described it as a certain contempt for all other people. Theophilacte, a Christian writer called it the citadel and summit of all evils. The real terror of this pride is that it is a thing of the heart. It certainly means haughtiness. But the man who suffers from it might well appear to be walking in downcast humility while all the time there was in his heart a vast contempt for all his fellow men. This pride shuts itself off from God for three reasons. And I'll go on to these now, but... That was an an amazing idea to me because, you know, you always think about a pride person as being somebody very obvious. You know, you could look at them and say, oh, well, you know, there's somebody who thinks too much of themselves. But it's not necessarily true. Pride is something we can hide in our heart. And we can shuffle around like this with our head downcast, doing good works, looking marvellous, and all the time being full of pride. And nobody knows. So what are these, these three reasons that pride shuts us off, itself off from God for? So first of all, it does not know its own need. It walks in proud self-sufficiency. Secondly, it cherishes its own independence. It likes being that way. It will be beholden to no man, and it won't even be beholden to God. And lastly, it does not recognize its own sin. A pride like that cannot receive help. Because it doesn't know that it needs help and therefore it cannot ask. It loves not God but itself. That's the thing about pride. Only the owner may know it is there. And that's why we have the personal responsibility to guard against pride and selfish desire. To be honest about dealing with them when they arise. You know what? In that work, we will not be alone because God promises us his grace what a privilege what an example to the world of god's mercy if we show the potential of life without care for the joneses and this should be us let us pray Father, thank you that sometimes you show us what we look like in a mirror. It hurts when you do that. But if we are honest, Lord, if we are open to your correction, then we know that we will come away as better people for that look in the mirror. Lord, I pray that your word, that, your, that the reflection you've shown us today would change us as we leave here. A change that wouldn't be something we think about for a couple of minutes afterwards, maybe while we're having tea, but something that's going to come to mind as we go through our lives from here on. And that we would be able to show the world what it means to be a Christian, Lord, and to love our neighbours as ourselves. And that that would bring you honour and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.